it's Thursday the 28th of January 2021, day four of the Davos Agenda Week, and this is Radio Davos. We can use the same terminology, virus. Imagine a virus impacting all these connected devices and change their behavior or stop their behavior. There's a tapestry of life, this glorious tapestry of all these interconnected life forms. And in some places, the tapestry is now so tattered, it's going to be very, very hard to put it back together. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility, and I mean that, and ambition. Hello and welcome to Radio Davos. Every day on this podcast, we're looking ahead to the main events on the program, the big issues, the big names, and we hope one or two big ideas. You can follow all of the action live at wf.ch slash Davos Agenda and across our social media feeds using the hashtag Davos Agenda. You can also listen or watch back to all the sessions on Catch Up. Later in the show, an interview with the nature campaigner, the primatologist, Jane Goodall. But now I'm joined by my co-host for today, Alison Chantel, co-editor-in-chief of Business Insider. Alison, how are you? I'm doing great, Robin. Thanks for having me. So pleased to have you here. Tell us something about yourself and also you have your own podcast. Tell us something about that. I have been with Insider Inc., since almost inception, I was employee number six there, and I've been running our newsroom for the past four and a half years as editor-in-chief. Um, and I launched our first podcast uh, called This is Success a few years ago, uh, and you know we interview moguls in business about how they got to where they are and where they started um, and hearing kind of their, their growth stories. Who's your favorite interviewee so far? I think one of my favorites actually was LeBron James. I yeah. interviewed uh, him right after, right before Trump won the 2016 presidency, right after he'd won a national championship um, and, uh, you know, had asked him, you know, who he was voting for and Ohio's swing state, what was he going to do about that? But more than just the interview, which covered a lot of ground, he was just very, um, very approachable, very kind. Uh, his media handlers were not like, you can't ask this, this, and this as some media handlers are. They were very chill. Um, so I, I really I can't believe anyone's I wanted. like that. I, I know. Um, I, yes, I've, I've seen it for people with less of a profile than him. And he, you know, he's been in the media since he was 18 or, or younger. So he, he's, he knows how to do an interview. That's great. So if, if I wanted to hear that, is it still available somewhere? It is. Yes, it's on iTunes. Okay. And I search for what? This is success. Okay, before Alison and I dive into what's happening on day four, let's listen to a couple of highlights from day three, where the new US administration was in attendance in the person of John Kerry. As former Secretary of State under Barack Obama, he signed the Paris Climate Agreement, which President Trump then pulled out of. Here he is speaking yesterday. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility, and I mean that, and ambition. Humility, because we know we've wasted four years in which we were inexcusably absent. But we re-enter with ambition, knowing that at the COP in Glasgow in November, all nations have to raise our sights together or we all fail together. John Kerry was speaking just before President Biden signed an array of executive orders on climate change action. And he told the Davos agenda that Biden gets it. Let me just say to you, President Biden is totally committed to this fight. He understands what we're up against, and that's why he ran on the most ambitious, comprehensive climate platform of any presidential candidate in US history. 
Yesterday on Radio Davos, we heard from former central banker Mark Carney on how and why big finance is moving to get behind climate action. Here's the UK minister who will preside over the follow-up to the Paris Climate Summit, COP26 in November, Alok Sharma, with an anecdote that illustrates a big change of attitude among the people dealing in the big money. Last year, we launched in the City of London our finance campaign for COP26. And um, I, before I came into politics, I, I spent 20 years working in finance and banking. And if at that point, at the start of my career, you had said to uh, bankers and investors, let's get together, let's talk about climate, let's talk about climate risk, I don't think that many people would have turned up. The Guildhall, those colleagues who know it, uh, in the City of London was absolutely packed, standing room only. But amid the optimism, John Kerry reminded us of the scale of the challenge. Even if we did everything that was promised in Paris, folks, the Earth's temperature is going to rise to 3.7 degrees. That's where Paris left off. And that's just because the conglomeration of all the things that people were willing to do just didn't add up to what we need to do. So what I'm trying to say is we have to go to Glasgow with a view, each of us, to hold all of ourselves accountable at a time where we know so much more about what it takes. Three years ago, Scientists starkly warned us that we had 12 years in which to make decisions to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Now, already, we're down to nine years left. Okay, so we're here at the start of day four. One of the main themes is the fourth industrial revolution, which for anyone who works at the World Economic Forum, that's bread and butter for us. We speak about that every day. It's 4IR even has its own acronym, but for normal people, I realise they might not know what it is. So to start us off, before we get stuck into it, Alison, I thought I would play you this clip. I spoke to Murat Somnez, who's a member of the Forum's Managing Board, and he's head of its Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco. And I asked him to explain what is the fourth industrial revolution. This is what he said. Humanity has gone through multiple industrial transformations, first with the steam engine, then with electricity, then with computers. Those are the first, second and the third industrial revolutions. The fourth one is unique in its scope and speed. And the Internet pretty much empowered or enabled it. We're now seeing in the fourth industrial revolution simultaneous developments in multiple fields from synthetic biology, such as gene editing, to new materials, to new transport systems like drones. And in the software side, major developments in artificial intelligence, particularly in a field called deep learning or machine learning. And these are all happening simultaneously. That creates enormous opportunities, but also new questions to be answered, new challenges to be solved. So the fourth industrial revolution is a continuation of the industrial revolutions, but it's different in its scope and speed. So that's the fourth industrial revolution. Are you very plugged in, Alison? Is the fourth industrial revolution high on your agenda? Uh, I mean, as you as you stated in that clip, you it's been a topic of conversation for the last few years, and I think we're pretty deep into the internet wave of it to the point where almost you wonder if the fourth generation, fourth industrial revolution, could be splitting off into another where you have emerging tech like five G and AI that some people feel like could be even bigger than the internet um, or even more transformative, and so. I don't know. It seems like a, a lot remains to be seen, but lots ahead. So sessions on day four at Davos Agenda Week, they look at the potential benefits of those things, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and also some of the drawbacks. 
for them, which we'll also get onto later in our conversation here. And also the fact that there are billions of people who don't have any access to the internet at all, who are completely excluded at the moment from the fourth industrial revolution. I think that's an issue that will be discussed as well today. Talking of technological drawbacks um, brings me to a subject here that they're calling cyber pandemic. Of course, we've lived with a pandemic for real, a health pandemic. This is Murat again on what they mean by a cyber pandemic. We can use the same terminology, virus. If you have a virus penetrating all the connected devices on the internet, and there are some estimates that take that number to 20 billion last year, and it's increasing by billions. So if you can imagine a virus influencing or impacting all these connected devices and change their behavior or stop their behavior, think of it as a virus penetrating every connected device that is visible and invisible and causing harm intentionally or unintentionally. And unlike a vaccine that has been rapidly developed for COVID-19, we do not yet have an equivalent. So that's why it's really important for the global leaders to come together and discuss ways to avoid it, prevent it, ideally. Does the idea of a, a pandemic computer virus keep you up at night, Alison? I think it keeps a lot of people up at night. I mean, even just that 20 billion connected figures um, stat is really just mind blowing. And if you think of something that could potentially take them all out and the pair to the fact that, by the way, there's no, a lot of this is the wild, wild west. There's no global framework for how to help control um, cybersecurity, um, any sort of regulation, certainly even on a country by country basis, like the US is so far behind on that. And if you look at CEO studies, I mean, cyber threats are up there as a top concern year after year um, in major studies for CEOs. And they're spending more and more on trying to, to lock things down on their end, but they're going to be on their own. You know, you think about what that would happen to not just consumer devices, but what would that do to banking? And what would that do to like everything that we do online, especially coming out of this pandemic where we've now learned how to even be more reliant on our devices and less reliant uh, in the real world, um, to flip that around and have it be attack on our, our tools and, and our devices would be pretty devastating. Yeah, and you mentioned surveys of company leaders. Well, there was one we were talking about earlier in the week, which is the World Economic Forum's annual Global Risks Report, where it does come up again and again, cyber attacks and, uh, and viruses of the computer variety. The, the only problem is, Everyone might worry about these things or express concern about them, but they express concern about every year pandemics and look what happened to prevent this the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Very little. And they worry about, and have worried about for decades now, climate change and the lack of action. I think this is why anyone listening in to an event like this, the Davos Agenda Week, they're going to want to hear not just people raising concerns, but actually seeing what can be done. And you're listening to Radio Davos on day four of the Davos Agenda Week with me, Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and my co-host today, Alison Chantel, co-editor-in-chief of Business Insider. Let's move on to a third and final topic, Alison, social media. Let's listen to Murat again about how we're all in our own social media bubble. When you're on the online platform, you no longer necessarily have uh, the ability or the willingness or the need to listen to a divergent set of opinions. The question is, how do we govern these platforms without restricting their ability to share information freely? You know, we need to make sure that people's opinions are 
hurt, but how do we prevent the downstream harm uh, that these uh, actions may cause? So that's the topic. It is a very tricky topic. It's a sensitive topic. And uh, that's why we're excited to bring it again to the top level of leadership to discuss ways to uh, minimize uh, harm that these, uh, the users of these platforms can cause. These technologies will have profound impacts on what happens to our jobs and the new skills required. There's already a gap in the skilled people of these uh, related to these technologies, but it will also have an impact on the existing jobs. So that is a key theme of uh, day four as well is how do we ensure that we have an inclusive future for everyone involved? That was World Economic Forum Managing Director Murat Sonmez on the dangers of social media and being in a bubble. And this is Melissa Fleming, who leads global communications for the United Nations, who spoke to me in November. When COVID-19 emerged, it was clear from the outset this was not just a public health emergency but it was a communications crisis as well. Actually, WHO put out the term right at the start, infodemic. We're seriously in an information environment that is polluted, and we need to clean up the pollution. That was Melissa Fleming from the United Nations. You can hear all of that interview on a World vs. Virus episode. That's a sister podcast for this one. Search for World vs. Virus wherever you get your podcasts and see that one from November. So, Alison... Is fake news, as a journalist, I imagine fake news is something that concerns you. Great concern. I, I think it's one of the biggest problems uh, in certainly in the business world, uh, if not the greater world. And how you solve it is a bit of anyone's guess. I mean, I think we've seen some unprecedented actions between big tech uh, in the US where suddenly within 48 hours, you had a ban on um, Donald Trump. You had a ban on apps that were promoting uh, fake news without good moderation like Parler. Um, and you've never really seen them try and clean up their act that quickly. Um, but at the same time, is, is, that, is that really the solution? Is that the way forward? Uh, I think one question we need to ask ourselves is, is social media doing the world more harm than good as it currently exists? And then how do you, how do you solve it if it's not? Um, and whose responsibility is it to solve it? Um, do you want a world where you have movements like Black Lives Matter, which I think many would argue is, is excellent. But then at the same time, what if that means you also have QAnon and conspiracy theories flying around? Um, is the world better with both or with neither? And, and how do you separate out one from the other? I don't know. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's something that will come up today and day four of the Davos Agenda Week. Alison, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you. Now on Radio Davos, time for today's interview. Jane Goodall is one of the leading voices in the world advocating for the protection of nature. She came to fame in the 1960s as a young primatologist and anthropologist who studied the behaviour of chimpanzees and broke the scientific consensus at the time that humans were the only animals to use tools. Aged 86 now, she's more vocal than ever and has just launched her own podcast. In a wide-ranging chat with my colleague Jill Cassar, Jane Goodall said that if the coronavirus pandemic had taught us one thing, it should be that we disrespect nature at our peril. We have absolutely disrespected nature and disrespected animals. It's our treatment of animals that's really caused this, this pandemic. 
the people studying zoonosis have predicted this for years and years and years. This is going to happen. If we don't do something different, there'll be more pandemics and they could be worse. Interesting that we're talking here just about the biological side of a pandemic and the specific diseases. What we've also seen in the COVID pandemic is significant mental health implications. And um, I'd really love to understand from you, you know, what role does nature play in helping us overcome uh, the mental health burden from the COVID crisis? Being out in nature is very important for our physical and mental health. Uh, it's been shown by child psychologists that a healthy environment for a child requires that child to be out in nature some part of every day. There's something built into us, probably from our prehistoric past. We need the greenness, we need birds singing, we need to be able to look up at the sky and see the stars twinkling at night. And the tragedy is today that there's more and more people and hundreds and thousands more children divorced from nature. You know, when I was last in Japan, they were talking about forest bathing. Would I like to go forest bathing? And I said, what's that? Well, you, you just go and bathe in the forest. <laughs> but I do know that for me, being out in the forest, I feel a very strong um, spiritual connection with the natural world. And that's terribly important for me. Just looking at the world uh, at the moment, uh, the US is rejoining the Paris Agreement, uh, new leadership there. Any thoughts from your end about uh, what this could mean for us? Oh, it's going to mean such a lot. I mean, the first thing President Biden did was to rejoin the Paris uh, Climate Change Agreement. And, you know, we've been waiting for this, but I think President Trump rolled back a hundred and something environmental protections, uh, most of which Obama had put in place, but some were put in place by Roosevelt. And so that's the second thing that Biden has promised to do is to reverse those decisions again. And it's going to make such a difference because it was, it was terrifying seeing all of these areas of nature destroyed in America. So perhaps some of our listeners may not understand fully the causes of these changes that we're seeing. What we do know is that uh, we're entering a period of unprecedented planetary warming, uh, a period that's commonly known also as the sixth mass extinction. Uh, the IUCN came out in December and mentioned that there are 31 species that have now been declared extinct uh, just last year and uh, 35,000 species threatened with extinction, which is about a quarter of all species that we know of. So can you just give us a little bit of a sense of, of why this is happening? If you think about the forests that we're destroying, if you think about the pollution of the ocean, if you think about the destruction of wetlands and grasslands and all of these other habitats. And it, what seems to me so utterly ridiculous, and I keep saying this, how can you possibly rationalize having unlimited economic development globally on a planet with finite natural resources? And those resources already in some areas are being used up quicker than nature can replenish them. And so we have to come face to face with the understanding that we must 
develop a new relationship with the natural world and a new kind of greener, uh, more sustainable economy. And if we don't, I mean, if we carry on with business as usual, we also have to consider there's about 7.8, I'm told, billion people on the planet today, something like that. Already, as I say, we're using up some natural resources faster than nature can replenish them. In 2050, it's predicted there'll be closer to 10 billion, 9.8 or something billion. So what's going to happen if we carry on with business as usual? It's desperately important that we find a new way of, a new respect for the natural world. Sounds like we're a big part of the problem, but also potentially a big part of the the solution. You work with young people from around the world. Uh, What would you say to our young listeners about their role in the years ahead, uh, which will require so much from us as a species? I started this program, Roots and Shoots, which is now in 87 countries. And it's for young people from kindergarten, university, everything in between. And it's about, yeah, I started it because I met so many young people, mostly high school and university, who'd lost hope. You've compromised our future, they said, and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, we have compromised their future. I don't think it's too late when they said Mm -hmm. there's nothing we can do. I thought, yes, there is something you can do. And so because everything's interconnected, I mean, you learn that in the rainforest, don't you? Everything's interconnected. Each little species has a role to play, no matter how small. And it may become extinct and everybody thinks, well, it doesn't matter. But maybe it was the main food source of another species and so on and so on. And that can lead to a ripple effect, which can and has led to total ecosystem collapse. So I see it as, you know, there's a tapestry of life, this glorious tapestry of all these interconnected life forms. And every time a species goes extinct, it's like tearing a hole. And in some places, the tapestry is now so tattered from all the holes that have been torn that it's going to be very, very hard to put it back together. So the role of the young people, once they realize that instead of feeling hopeless and depressed and angry, let me actually do something. Let me do something right here in my own community. Let me clear up trash. Let me lobby for protecting a little area of woodland with the animals there. Let me plant trees. Let me try and protect a forest and remove invasive species and whatever. And because the children choose their own project, that means they enter into it with energy. They roll up their sleeves, they get out there and they're taking action. And because of this interconnection, Roots and Chutes requires every group between them to do a project to help people, a project to help animals or other animals, and a project to help the environment, because we are all interrelated. And there's no good confronting people, pointing fingers, being aggressive, because they don't listen to you. I tell stories, Jill, I tell stories. If there's time, I tell them stories. You've got to get to the heart. What's your favorite story, Jane? Oh, well, I mean, there was one when the chimpanzees were still a bit afraid of me, but this baby was born and he was about five months old, just beginning to totter. And his mother was still nervous, but 
he was curious. She had her hand around him, but he tottered towards me. And with those great big eyes, he reached out and touched my nose. And it was just, I mean, it was just so much trust. It was beautiful. So as, as a parent, on behalf, on behalf of parents, uh, any particular um, advice for how we might help children to stay open to, to nature besides, you know, taking them on, on walks and, and giving them exposure? Is there anything in particular you found in, in the way that kind of parents can interact with their children that might help, help to, to foster this? Well, I think, again, stories are wonderful and finding little things on YouTube, which I mean, kids just love to watch, you know, one young animal protecting another one. And there's so much out there now. I'm trying to collect them together so that people will realize this, this is an amazing world. And then, you know, just, just to watch in slow motion a bud opening, just from this little thing opening, or a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis and gradually the wings dry and this beautiful thing flies away. And it was just a little, little caterpillar once. All those things, just to get into the child's mind. Super, super ideas. I think I'm going to start Googling after this, uh, this interview. Um, one other recommendation I have for listeners is Jane's new series called Hope Casts that focuses on um, how do we inspire hope around climate change, biodiversity loss, um, how do we empower communities? Um, Jane, why did you set this up? Set it up because um, I was advised to by my team because it wasn't my idea, because mm -hmm. I'm doing so much of this, um, other people's podcasts. And the idea was, well, why don't we have a podcast for you? So one thing I love about it, okay, we're starting with well-known people because we want to attract people. But mm -hmm. then the idea is to continue and to bring in unknown, amazing people, particularly young people, so they get known and they can be celebrated and Brilliant. other young people will get inspired. You know, I, one podcast I did, hadn't been shown yet, was a 13-year-old little African-American girl. And when she was three, her favorite food was chicken nuggets. And she asked her mother one day, where do they come from? So mother, well, the supermarket. Yes, but where does the supermarket get them from? This child has become she is so knowledgeable. Now she's 13. She talks about being a vegan. She talks about how all these animals that are raised in horrible conditions for food are destroying the environment, how it's leading to climate change, how the antibiotics they're fed are, are, are making um, bacteria resistant to antibiotics, making us sick. And this child is amazing. Jane, to finish this, I wanted to ask you three quick questions. First question is, if you were an animal, what would you be and why? Well, you know, that's a jolly difficult question to answer quickly because it would depend on the condition the animal was in. But if I can be in an ideal condition and choose any animal, I'm going to be a dog. What was your most memorable experience uh, as you have uh, conducted your work through, through time and why? I suppose the most memorable simply because it changed the trajectory of my research, it was a turning point, was when 
the first chimpanzee to lose his fear of me, David Greybeard. And he, he wouldn't let me really close, but uh, close enough to really see what he was doing instead of running away. And I saw him reaching out and picking stems of grass and using them to push into a termite mound and picking the termites off. And I saw him break leafy twigs and carefully strip the leaves to make a tool to fish for termites. Knowing what I knew about chimps, it didn't actually surprise me, but I knew how exciting it was because I knew what science was saying. Suddenly from a study that was going to run out of money in a, in a month's time, because I hadn't seen anything really exciting, suddenly it was news all over the world, you know? Extraordinary. Wow. Last question for you, and then the podcast will be over. What puts a smile on your face when you wake up in the morning? Well, sometimes there isn't a smile. (laughs) (laughs) Because these days, but um, the smile that I get, if I look out of the window there, which is, I'm up here in my bedroom, actually. This is my office too. It's tiny, very tiny up in the attic. Um, And if I look out there, I see the beech tree, my favorite tree when I was a child, because this is the house I grew up in. And uh, so I see that tree and it makes me think of me when I was a child. I used to climb up there with my homework, my Tarzan books, my dog to do little. And that makes me smile because I remember how I was. And with a start of amazement, think who I am now and get the same person. Jane Goodall speaking to my colleague Jill Kassar. You can follow the Davos Agenda live and on catch up at wef.ch slash Davos Agenda, where you can also hear all episodes of Radio Davos. And you can subscribe to the podcast version on our Great Reset feed. Just search for either Radio Davos or The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. And why not join our podcast club on Facebook? Just search for WEF Podcast Club. Radio Davos is a podcast from the World Economic Forum. It was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with additional reporting by Jill Cassard, Charlotte Beale, Anna Bruce Lockhart and Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. A huge thanks to my co-host today, Alison Chantel of Business Insider. Please check out her podcast, Success, How I Did It. I'll be back tomorrow on the final day of the Davos Agenda Week with a new co-host, Ravi Velour of The Straits Times. Until then, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.